Uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark uh, chapter 1, as we are working our way through this now, uh, we start at verse uh, 9 today, uh, and it's the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus as, from John's perspective. He says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. We come to life in any one of our lives, and there's, uh, the longer you've lived, the more there are sort of distinct, important events that take place in your life. Uh, for some, it could be uh, graduation from university. And I say university because generally, that's then when you embark on a career for the rest of your life. And so you might, um, after you uh, make it through university and you graduate, you get a job, and that's when your career in whatever field you have chosen takes place. Or it might be um, a trade school, and you get your red seal, and then you begin your career as a plumber or as a, an electrician or whatever it might be. A marriage is also a really significant uh, point of change and uh, direction in people's lives. And so there's different events that we could... Uh, attached to and say, well, let's start with a story about so-and-so with this event. When Mark comes to think about Jesus, he doesn't begin where Matthew does, when Matthew takes us back to uh, Jesus' connection with David and his connection with Abraham. He doesn't start where Luke does and go all the way back to Adam and in the meantime describe the birth of Jesus, the angels, the wise men, um, the songs that were sung and those sorts of things. Um, nor does he start where John started. And John took us back, you remember, all the way to eternity past. Where Mark starts is with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This account, or this section of scripture that we read, is the inauguration. It's the, it's the this is now moment in Jesus' life where he goes from being sort of a private person in the world to being the public servant of God. And it's a critical transition in Jesus' life. And so Mark describes this for us and this transition and, and what this inauguration, the start of his public ministry looks like. Jesus is about 30 years old now. This is what Luke tells us. And so about 30 years old, it says that Jesus came in those days from Nazareth of Galilee. We looked at those days last week. In those days, this was a time of craziness. Um, people were flocking to John the Baptist. They were coming from Judea, all Judea, and from Jerusalem, the, the rich and the poor, soldiers, tax collectors, Pharisees. Uh, the numbers were just staggering of those that were going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. And among those that went out about six months into his ministry was Jesus. John's baptism uh, or, or ministry would go on probably for about another six uh, months, and then if you've been reading the 10 by 5 by 5, you know that John is beheaded. He's killed by Herod, and that happens about six years after this point. So in the middle of his ministry of baptism, Jesus goes out to the desert, the wilderness, to be baptized by John. It says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. These aren't just random things that John puts in there. They're things that help us um, uh, have markers and, and, and make sense of the story of what's going on. And the emphasis is on the man, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. John's point is that Jesus was a human being, that Jesus had a home. He had a home on this earth. He had a, a hometown, and that hometown was 
uh, uh, Nazareth in Galilee. He had a, a mother and a father. He had brothers and he had sisters. He had flesh and blood like you and I have flesh and blood. He was like us in every way except without sin. This is a, a reminder that the word became flesh. John or Mark wants us to understand that Jesus was this man that came from Nazareth in Galilee. He wasn't some superhuman. He wasn't some extrahuman. He was like us in every way with flesh and blood. Did he come because he was curious? Like, you think Jesus was hanging around in, in Nazareth and hearing about all the commotion that was going place in the wilderness? He said, well, I got to go see what's going on. Not at all. It's pretty clear that Jesus went to John purposefully. In fact, we read that Jesus went to or came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Jesus understood the, the, the importance of this, the, 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 the need to uh, be baptized by John. And we say, well, why? Why was Jesus baptized by John? Why did Jesus purposefully go to John to be baptized? Because you remember that one of the reasons John was baptizing people was for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus wasn't a sinner. Jesus had never sinned. And so clearly Jesus wouldn't go to John as an expression of the need for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We go to Matthew and we maybe find a little bit of why Jesus went to be baptized by John. Matthew writes, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for to us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. There was a purpose that Jesus went to be baptized by John, and that was to fulfill all righteousness. It was a purposeful identification of Jesus with humanity. The Old Testament portrays Jesus in, as coming, or the coming Messiah, as one who would come, and the heart of his ministry was to identify with the people, to identify with Israel, to enter into their life, to enter into their world, to become one with them, to be like them in every way, except, as we know, without sin, to express his solidarity with the people. It was an amazingly humbling experience for Jesus to be baptized. Because where everyone else was looking and wondering, well, what sin did they commit or what sin did they commit? I'm sure when Jesus came there, there was no sin that Jesus committed. Rather, his was an identification, though, with sinners. It was an identification with all those who were coming to be baptized by John. It was to fulfill righteousness, to fulfill the plan that God had through which Jesus would become the one through whom righteousness would come to all those who would put their trust in him. This was the amazing reality where Paul would later say that he who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so in this uh, beginning act of Jesus, this inauguration of Jesus. Jesus willfully embraces the mission that God has sent him on. He willfully embraces the task that is set before him, and he identifies with sinners. It says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, 
in whom I am well pleased. I want to point out something for you just to work through in your own heads here for a moment. Even though John will draw attention to Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee, he also, remember, is wanting us to understand that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so in this last little section there, he, he says, God speaks and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we might say ourselves, well, are we talking about the same person here? Or do we have two different people here? I get Jesus of Nazareth um, from Galilee, and I get Christ, the son of God. But how do they go together? How do they fit? Well, the Bible tells us something extraordinary has, has taken place in the body of Jesus. That, yes, Jesus is fully human in every way like we are, but he was also the incarnate God. That God from all eternity dwelled in Jesus in the flesh. And so John doesn't want us to forget or lose sight of that reality when we think about Jesus. The first part, in a sense, is, is easy, where it says he came up out of the water. Or maybe you might think it is easy. Baptism is simply immersion. That's what we remember when we baptize a person. When we baptize people here, we immerse them in the water, and they come up out of the water. It's a, uh, it's a full submersion in water. And so Jesus came up out of the water. He was submerged in the water. But even here, his baptism in the water, the shadow of the cross is already looming over the start of Jesus' ministry, even though it is just starting. And you say, well, how is that? And it says, well, this was not the only baptism that Jesus would undergo. This is not the only immersion that Jesus would experience. Luke tells us that Jesus says to his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What Jesus is referring to is his death, that he has a baptism to be accomplished. He will be immersed fully in death. It won't be partial. It will be whole, and it will, complete. It will be complete. And the, the thought of that was distressing for Jesus. Remember in the garden, it said that, that he sweat drops of blood as he was considering the, the, the reality of his death and experiencing the full wrath of God and the weight of the, the sins of the people being placed upon him. And it says that as Jesus anticipated that baptism, he was in distress until it would be accomplished. And so this baptism in water looked forward to or foreshadowed the baptism of Jesus into death when he would be fully immersed into death to carry our sins. It describes here a number of things that were seen and heard. I'm not clear about who saw and heard what. I'm clear about this. Jesus knew what he saw and heard, and that's what is recorded here. Uh, Jesus came out of the water, and he saw heaven torn, and he heard the voice from heaven, and he saw the dove descend upon him. But did anybody else see that? Luke uh, describes the fact that um, Jesus' baptism was public. It wasn't sort of a secret thing where Jesus came to John and caught him and said, you know, listen, when the crowd's dimmed down and, you know, it's getting dark and nobody's around, baptize me. Luke says, no, Jesus came to be baptized where other people were being baptized. So it wasn't a secret it was a public baptism of Jesus. He was publicly identifying with all the other people that were coming to be baptized. It was a witnessed 
baptism by Jesus. John's gospel tells us that John the Baptist saw what's described here. It says, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating to me that God had revealed something to John the Baptist and, and that John wasn't necessarily sure who Jesus the Christ was at this point. That he became sure of that at the baptism because God said to him, listen, when you're baptizing, the one whom which the Spirit of God descends upon, that is the Christ, the Son of God. And so it's like a penny drop for John when the Spirit descended and rested on Jesus. And that was a confirmation from God to John that, in fact, Jesus was the Christ. But what other people perceived, we don't know. We're not told. And I don't know if it really matters, but what matters is what Jesus saw and perceived. What did he see? Well, he saw heaven being torn apart, and he saw a dove, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's a better way. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. I want you to think about heaven for a moment. What do you think about when you think about heaven? What informs your thinking? What fills out your understanding of what heaven is, that heaven is described in the Bible? And we all think about it because the Bible tells us that God has put eternity into the hearts of all of us. So we, we all think that there's something that happens after we die, somewhere that we go after we die. The, Christ, or the Bible talks about heaven being a place, though. And so what do you think about heaven? What informs your thinking about it? Is it, is it the Bible? When you read the Bible, do you, do you note things that it says about heaven? Or, or is the Bible not enough? Or is not the Bible not the only thing that informs your view of heaven? There's been dozens of books written in, in the last half century which describe the experience of people's own views of heaven and even some of their experiences of being brought to heaven and coming back from heaven. Do those inform your view of heaven? My conviction is that all that we need to know and all that we can know truthfully and in a trustworthy manner about heaven is recorded in Scripture and in Scripture alone. It doesn't need to be supplemented or filled out with the experience of those who suggest or purport to have gone to heaven and then come back from heaven. When a Christian or a person who claims to be a Christian tells me that they have gone to heaven or tells me things about heaven that I don't find anywhere in Scripture, am I obligated to believe them? No, I'm not. I'm under no obligation to believe the experience of another person. And in fact, I can certainly question it when that experience is contrary to what we find in the Word of God. The Bible does tell us that there are a few people who must have experienced heaven for a period of time. And by that I say, well, there's a lot of people that died and were raised from the dead. Not a lot, but you probably count on two hands the number of people that the Bible says died and were dead for a period of time. I don't think they lived in a realm of subconscious or unconsciousness. They would have gone somewhere. But not a single one of those people, including Lazarus, who was dead for four, year, or four years, he would have really stunk, 
<laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Four, four days, they came back to life, but not a single one of them wrote about it. Not a single one of them, there, there's no account of what they experienced in that period of time when they were dead, what happened between that time and then when they were raised back to life again. Paul, we know, had an experience of being taken up into heaven. It's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he didn't write about that experience. In fact, he was, he was refrained from writing about it. He says, I saw things that a man can't utter or a man can't say. The Bible does describe a few experiences about heaven. You can read them in Daniel and in Revelation. But again, that's where we get our information. The Spirit of God has given us glimpses into certain things that are going on in heaven. All I'm saying is that what the Bible says about heaven is sufficient for me, and it should be sufficient for you. There is a certain amount of heaven that I think we can be aware of. Um, while Paul does say, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, or mind has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, we need to go to the next verse. Because the next verse says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So there are things of, of just wonder and, and that blow our mind as we think about uh, the unseen things. And where we get our knowledge of those is through, is through the Spirit. And as the Spirit has revealed to them to us in Scripture. And so some of the things that we know about heaven, it says there's a voice came from heaven. This is a, the voice of God. And what this tells us then is that um, this is where God is. And in fact, you can read this again and again and again, that heaven is where God dwells. It's always described as being up there, but heaven is all around us. But nonetheless, heaven is where God dwells. And the Bible also tells us that heaven is the place where God's throne is. John uh, describes this place, or this time in uh, John chapter, Revelation 4, verse 1, that he was brought up by the Spirit into heaven, and there in heaven was an open door, and I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven was a throne, and the throne was occupied. As we said four or five years ago when we were looking through Revelation, this is sort of describing the control center of the universe, the control tower of the universe, that heaven is where God is and where his throne is and where God directs and guides and oversees and rules the whole universe, including the world in which we live. So heaven is where God is. Heaven is where God's throne is. And we are told to pray how? Our Father, who art in heaven. And so we look to God and we pray to God as he's in heaven and as he is on the throne. Which then begs the question, well, if God is in heaven, who can be with God? That in itself is a question that you can wrestle with on your own. But heaven is also a place, right? It's a place where God is. It's a place where his throne is. We're told that Jesus came from heaven. And John 17 says he goes back to heaven. Acts chapter uh, one, I think it's verse 11, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven and that Jesus dwells in heaven now. So heaven is a place. The Bible tells us also that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The disciples were anxious about where Jesus was going. He says, I'm going to a, prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So heaven is a place where Jesus is. 
Heaven is a place where we can be or will be one day. It's also a place, though, where the elect angels are and where the people who have died in Christ are. In Hebrews, we read, But you have, not come, uh, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so heaven is a place. Heaven is a place where God is. Heaven is a place where God's throne is. Heaven is a place where Jesus is. Heaven is a place where those who have died in Christ have gone. Scripture tells us also that for those who are in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. That has huge implications just in and of itself. It's a proof of where I belong. It's a proof of where my home is. It's a proof of where my country is. And this is what we see again and again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that it was this heavenly home that was the guiding light for people. It was what motivated them. It was what directed them. It's where their faith was placed. It wasn't in this world. It was in the place to come. It was in heaven. And so Paul would say, that's where my citizenship is. That's whose law I obey. That's whose justice I prefer. That's my home. But Scripture also tells us that our bank is in heaven. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow up, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where neither thief approaches nor moth destroys. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor stress Rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do we know that we can bank in heaven? Do we know that we can lay up treasure in heaven? Do we know that we can open an account, so to speak, in heaven? And do we know that where our treasure is, where what we value most, where the the, 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 the mark of our economy is, that's where our treasure will be. If our treasure is in earthly money and in earthly banks, that's where our hearts will be. We will check our RSPs. We will check our bank statements. We will check our interest accruements. We will check our stocks. That's where our heart will be. But if we've got a treasure in heaven, we will check that account and we will put things in that account. And so heaven is a place in which you can bank. It's a place in which you can invest. Scripture also tells us that it's where our mindset should be. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are earth on earth. So heaven should 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 grab us. It should, it should shape our thinking. 
Because this world is temporary. This world is passing away. Heaven is eternal. And so just very briefly then, heaven is my home. It's where my citizenship is. Heaven is where my bank is. Heaven is my preoccupation. It is a real place. Let Scripture inform your thinking about heaven. And not only did, did Jesus hear a voice from heaven, but it says that he saw the heavens being torn apart. It's funny how little phrases catch you. This phrase caught me this time reading Mark. I've never stopped to reflect on that phrase. And he saw heaven torn open. It's the same word that's used to describe at the end of Jesus' ministry, um, his death, when the, the thick, thick curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was like just ripped apart. And this is simply conjecture on my mind. But as I was working this through, you know, this is the start of Jesus' ministry. And it's almost like God in heaven just grabs heaven and he rips it open. And he says, well done, son. As Jesus fulfills his ministry, as he's about to embark on it, God just rips it open for all of heaven to see the son of God taking on the purposes and plan of God in redemption. It's also, though, an answer to prayer, which speaks of this. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah records this prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear apart the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and when fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things and that we did not look for. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. This is an answer to a prayer uttered 700 years earlier. God, come down. And so here the heavens were rended and God came down to earth. And what did he experience? He experienced the Holy Spirit descending on him or coming to rest on him. Literally, the Spirit was descending into him, indicating that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on him with fullness. I'm not sure why the description, like a, like a dove, you can work, work that through on your own. There's a lot of things that are talked about, possibly the Spirit that was brooding over the uh, the pre-substance of the world that God created. Possibly it has to do with the dove associated with Noah when Noah sent out a dove and the dove came back with a sprig in its mouth and pointed to new creation or, or recreation. Maybe it was Jesus' identification with Israel because Hosea talks about Israel as a dove. There's a lot of things that none of them really grasp me or, or even make sense of it still of why it's described as the Spirit coming like a dove upon Jesus. I think maybe the point is simply that there was a physical reality that pointed to a spiritual reality. That how did, how, how, how did we know that the Spirit came on Jesus? Well, the Spirit came like a dove on Jesus. And why did the Spirit come on Jesus? This is what I want us to think about for the last couple of minutes to empower Jesus' ministry here on earth. 
See, I want us to, 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 to be able to, while Jesus is one, Jesus the man and Jesus the God, God, we, we have to work through the implications of that, though, for Jesus on earth. And so the empowering of the Spirit was on Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Paul descri- or Peter describes the ministry of Jesus this way. He says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So here's Peter connecting it to the baptism. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. There it is, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then how he went about doing good and healing all who were impressed by the, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Why do you think this? How did Jesus live a life of perfect obedience? How did Jesus do the things that he did? How did Jesus resist temptation? How did he perfectly obey the will of the Father? Well, some would answer, well, he was God. That's not a satisfactory answer, though, to me. Because the New Testament writers tell us again and again to, to imitate Jesus, to um, Jesus is our example. Well, if he's God, how can I follow that? How, how, can I, how can I do that? Because I'm not God. And so for me, the answer, I think, is explained in the sense that if we're commanded to be like Jesus, to follow in his steps, then the point is that we are commanded to be like Jesus the man. And to walk in obedience as Jesus the man did. Who although fully God, was also fully man. And he lived his life on earth almost entirely as a man on earth. We need to think that through. Is it possible that the humanity of Jesus is more help to us than we think? You see, I think it's as a fully man that we best account for the way that Jesus lived his life. Jesus was the second Adam. He was the seed of the woman. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the son of David. And although he was one who was both fully God and fully man, he lived his life here on earth indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God. So put another way, Jesus lived his life obeyed the Father, resisted temptation, and so fulfilled his calling, all in the power of the Spirit who is upon him. My point is, as Jesus lived in the flesh, so you and I are to live in the flesh. You see, I'm sunk if I try and do it on my own flesh. I'm sunk if I try and deal with, 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 with temptation in my own strength. I am sunk if I try and make sense of questions that are huge in my mind and I've got to deal with if I try and do it in my own understanding, in my own wisdom. No matter how much I try in and of that myself, I can't do it. But there's this amazing reality that, that as a Christian, I can be filled with the Holy Spirit. I can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I can have the Holy Spirit in me to dwell in me and to lead me and to guide me and direct me and to help me make sense of the things that are in front of me and to help me fulfill the calling that God has for me in my life in the particular area that I live. This is where Galatians is helpful, for it says that we are to, to display the fruit of the Spirit. It tells us that we are to be led by the Spirit. 
It says that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Isn't this what Acts 1.8 is getting at, where, where it says there that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power. How is it that we live our life in the spheres that God has placed us? How is it that we live the Christian life in, in the, the workplace that we have, or in the home that we have, or in the school that we go to? How is it that we live the, the life of a Christian in the neighborhood that we live in? We don't live in our own strength. We can't make sense of it with our own wisdom. It's in the fullness of the Spirit, as the Spirit dwells in us, and as we follow Him, and as we listen to Him, as we're empowered by Him, that we live the life that God has called us to live. Jesus, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, we can't do this on our own, but the spirit dwelling in us, God dwelling in us through the spirit, helps us, enables us, empowers us to live the life that God wants us to lead. We'll talk about this next week, but the very next thing that happens after his baptism, it says, and immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And then it says in another place that, and Jesus returned from those temptations in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Do you understand again what, what, the, what, what, what I think Mark wants us to understand? That as the Son of God, the Spirit can add anything to Christ. Because he's God. He's the fullness of God. He's co-equal to God. He's co-eternal to God. He is God as the Spirit is God and as God is God. But as a man, Jesus can, or the Spirit of God can fill him with all the wisdom and power and enablement necessary to fulfill the mission that God has sent him on. In another place, Jesus, as he started his ministry, he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set liberally those, at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit has anointed me to do this, 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 and this. The role of the Spirit was to empower and equip and enable Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee to carry out the mission that God had sent for him. Again, as Peter said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. My point simply is this, loved ones. We need the Spirit of God in us. We need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians tells us, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. We need to be led by the Spirit. We need to have the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us and growing in us. We need the power of the Spirit to enable us and to give us boldness 
It's an incredible thing that God does to enable you and I, as men and women, to carry out the plan and the purpose God has for us peculiarly and particularly in the places that God has sent us to live for him. May God help us to realize that we need the Spirit of God. May God help us to open ourselves up to that infilling of the Spirit again and again. And to say, God, I need the Spirit's help. I need the Spirit's guidance. I need the Spirit's enablement to make it through even 10 minutes of my day, let alone the rest of my life. What a gift it is that we see here the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus, empowering him, enabling him for ministry in order that he could fulfill perfectly the plan and the purpose that God had for him. Father, I thank you for your word. It tells us so much about life in which we live, about how to live. Thinking about heaven reminds us that this world is a temporary place. It really is. We're all going to leave this world, and in the end of this age, this world is going to be dissolved by fire from heaven. It's temporary. But there is an eternal dwelling for the people of God. There is a place where you dwell. There is a place where you rule. There is a place where we are gathered together in your presence, a place where we belong. Father, would you help us to think about heaven rightly? But as we walk to heaven, as we journey to heaven, there's so many things that we face, so many things that we're not equipped for, so many things that we were never made to deal with or handle with on our own, in our own human wisdom and power and strength. And therefore, you send your Holy Spirit. You baptize us with the Holy Spirit so that we might live for you. Father, help us, I pray. Father, maybe introduce some people here today for the very first time to the work of the Spirit in giving them new life and in making them new creatures in Christ as they trust in Jesus and as Jesus baptizes them with life through the Spirit. For others of us, Lord, maybe we've become self-sufficient. That's not working very well. Would you remind us again that you have given your spirit so that we might be empowered to resist temptation, to go about doing good, to have wisdom and understanding in situations that would normally baffle us, to live in a way that pleases you. Help us wrestle with these things, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.